This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman. Featured in this episode is a conversation I had with the late Maeve Binchy. She was very, very popular. She died in 2012 when she was 73. But her very last full-length novel, Scarlet Feather, was published in 2000. And she said, that's it. That's my last. Um, I'm 60 and I'm retiring. And people got very upset. I just always assumed I was going to retire at 16. I was going to go on nice gentle tours around the world and potter around the garden and read other people's books. But the trouble is, um, people often think that writing books is perhaps almost like a factory and that there must be plenty more. You can make more, you can make more. I'm perfectly happy with the number I've got there. And there's about 14 out there. And sure, if people like them, maybe they might go back and read one of the early ones again. But you see, you're so good at it. That's the, that's the, that's the heart-rending thing. This friend of mine who'd, re- who'd just read Scarlet Feather, she said to me last night, she said, it's like mixing with old friends. And she said, when I finished, I was shocked that they didn't really exist. Now, not many people can do that. Not many people can conjure these friends out of the air. So that's why we'll miss the new ones. Well, it's very, uh, very pleasing, of course, and I love to hear that. I am a monstrous ego, and I cannot be, cannot, <laughs> cannot be flattered enough. I, I, I will run this past myself again several times and think about it when we said something nice like that. But what I have been is very lucky in one great way. I've never been bored in my life, which is great, as long as there are people to look at. And I often uh, tell people, if you just, you can put up with any situation, like a traffic jam or a delay in an airport, if you just look at people and imagine what life they have. And my heroes and heroines, not only in Scarlet Feather, but in a lot of the other books as well, they're perfectly ordinary people. And you can either do popular fiction, there's two ways of going. You either have uh, people who, are, who, who people say, goodness, and I, I could live that lifestyle. Imagine, like a fantasy, where everybody's so beautifully dressed as they are in, say, the posh American uh, soap operas like Dallas and Den- Dynasty used to be, where people were absolutely intolerably beautiful and successful and wore the most magnificent clothes, and people ha- watched it out of fantasy or more realistic things like Coronation Street or East Enders where people sort of saw resemblances to their own lives in it. Now, I went definitely for the latter, for ordinary people. And when I was looking ever, ever if I was staying in a place where there'd be a lot of people, I'd watch somebody's face and I'd watch your face and another person's face and think, I wonder what about him now? What's he doing? Has he just got a new job? Is he up to the job? Is he going to be sacked from the job? Is his son ill? Is his brother coming back from America that he doesn't like him? And put a, f- a big story beside every face. And that has been the most marvellous thing, because I've never been bored by it. And I really, whenever I bring a character into a book, I, I, I kind of see the character myself very well. And I write as quickly as I speak, gushing the words out and not pausing for punctuation. So then I'm, it's just as if I said to you, wait till I tell you who I met downstairs now and, and, and describe it all. And then the, the editors have to cut a bit of it out because it's a bit too wordy. And then it sort of comes out and that's how you know the people. What I like about you is you also produce, you can read a Maeve Binchy, just one paragraph maybe. Something I, I, I reread this morning and there's Tom and he's by some water and he's looking at um, swans and he says to a girl that's passing they mate for life you know and she says lucky them and do you remember what she says next well she she was a prostitute i think and she yes. said you wouldn't like to mate i think you don't pass a bit of casual mating, mating. <laughs> yes just at the moment yes i do remember that bit 
But I, I, again, I think it's awfully, I mean, I, I'm constantly looking at other people and listening. And considering that I talk so much, it's amazing that I do look and listen so much. But I look at people, and I remember seeing a very pale-faced young girl walking along by the canal in Dublin uh, one afternoon. And she was obviously a prostitute. And she was so thin. And she looked very unattractive because she was so thin and haunted-looking. And she must have been very druggy. And I thought to myself, what a dreadfully, dreadfully sad life she had. And then she smiled at me as I went by, and I smiled at her. And uh, she had such a, a haunting smile. And that I, I filed that in my memory. So I suppose when I was kind of thinking yeah, of the right. prostitute, you know, she'd sort of say, you don't fancy a bit of casual mating in that, in that funny way. So almost everything I see is, is somehow filed with the back of my brain. Is there something special for you? Are you lucky to have been born Irish? Is that part of it? Um, sometimes when I'm uh, reading your dialogue, you hear it. Um, and I think there's probably something in the cadences, something in the use of words. I think one of the great things, the lucky thing about being born Irish is we never had that extraordinary Victorian, Victorian British thing, which sort of nannies and, and Victorian aunts and things imposed on their children uh, a century ago, telling them that children should be seen and not heard, and that don't speak until you have something to say. Irish people always think that's a ridiculous idea, don't speak until you have something to say, because my goodness, I mean, we'd all be silent then if this happened. And and uh, the Irish also don't like uh, the concept of good listeners. We prefer good talkers. I hate a good listener because I think, why is that man being so quiet? And what is he, what is he, is he mentally taking it all down? Why is he not telling us about himself? Long, uh, sort of aimless, rambling stories about his past. And my husband is an Englishman, and when he came to Ireland the first time, when I was showing him off to people as, a, as, as, as my gentleman friend, when he came to Ireland, he was anxious to make a good impression. And he said, do you think they like me? I said, I think they did. I think they liked you a lot. I said, it doesn't matter to me whether they like you or not, because I like you. But I said, I think they did like you. But they were puzzled that you were a bit silent. And I said, they probably thought you spent most of your life in a prison. And he said, why would they think that? And I said, because you're not telling them eager, long, complicated stories about your past, as everybody else is doing. And now I'm delighted to say he's become much more talkative and cheery and, and, uh, and doesn't leave silences where he's politely waiting for other people to come in. So probably that, in answer to your question, is it, does, is it a help to be Irish? I think it probably is, because we, 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 we talk a lot, and talking is good. And if, and if you write as you speak, then it's, it, it makes it a bit easier. Scarlet Fellows starts on New Year's Eve. That's right. New Year's Eve in Dublin. Who's there? It's the, it's the present day in New Year's Eve, and everybody does a radio programme on radio saying, like these radio programmes very often do, asking a cosmic question, like, what would you really like to be doing this New Year's Eve? Because lots of people spend either a Christmas or a New Year's Eve doing something they don't want to do, uh, you know, out of duty, out of guilt, out of social climbing, out of, uh, of laziness or inertia or whatever it is. So all these people are listening to the radio and they're, they're wondering about it. And one of the first person is Cathy, whose name is Cathy Scarlett, she's listening to it, and she she has, um, she, she's driving a van to her, her mother-in-law's house because Cathy Scarlett uh, is, doing, is starting a catering business with her friend Tom Feather and that's where Scarlett Feather comes from. And Tom Feather is busy looking for premises for, the, for, the, for their company. So he's listening to it on the radio and thinks what he'd really like to be doing is finding a premises. And Cathy's very earnest and hard-working and, and 
very, very clear conscienced uh, husband, Neil, who's a, who's a barrister from a rich young family, a rich family, uh, is looking after uh, a student who is a prisoner of conscience in Ireland. And Neil's beautiful fiancée, who's at the moment a manicurist, but trying hard to become a model, model. Uh, is also listening to it. And those are the four main characters. And we meet them, they're all in different parts of the forest. And by the end of chapter one, they have found the premises and, uh, and the story can really begin. Yeah, um, I hadn't realised there was so much to, to, uh, to catering. I love the bit where they're kind of assessing the opposition. Yes. Um, I, you see, you made me laugh again. Well, uh, I know that I'm very lucky. I have two friends who are caterers, and uh, one in England and one in Ireland. And very often, if you ever go out with any of them, they, they start to dissect uh, the food. And their fork is going round and saying, well, that's a bought sauce, yes. or you know, that's, that's, that's nothing great, that's out of a can. And then they see little curly up canopies and say, well, we could all have done those in 10 minutes. I wonder how much they're charging for that, because that's their business. I mean, I, I would, when I would go to see things, I would, I would go to eat them and, and uh, rather than to, to, to analyze them. And they almost have them out in a laboratory slab. And so I was very lucky because these two women, who are great friends of mine, and funnily, neither of them intended to be a caterer. It was an extraordinary thing. One of my friends Philippa was a radiographer until she was 45 and suddenly decided to go into the business and now about 15 years later it has a very successful catering business in London and the other one of my friends is in Ireland her name is Della and she um, had intended to grow old and happy with her husband but in fact she and her husband split up and so she needed a new job when she was about 40 and so they both set up catering businesses and they've both been hugely successful and the stories they tell me about the things that go wrong and mainly you see nowadays that catering isn't just the, the absolute privilege of millionaires you could have somebody to your house to make supper for maybe 20 people and might charge £9 each for them. Mm. Now, it's a lot, I know, I mean, it's, it's not everybody has it, but it's much cheaper than taking them to a restaurant and you can buy the wine and, you know, bring it there. So, I mean, I, when I entertain, I certainly have a caterer now if I have more than about six or seven people, because if I have it, it, to cook for myself, I'm, I end up with my face scarlet inside in the oven and yeah, not <laughs> able to cope with the batola then can sing what, what the whole time, because I'm afraid I'll smell burning from the kitchen. So it's a great luxury to have a caterer. So I asked my two marvellous catering friends about the stories and they always told me about terrible things like one, one of my friends said she came to a house and there was a cat walking around the kitchen a huge big she hates cats as it happens I love cats I would have been delighted to see it but she was appalled uh, to see this cat shedding hairs everywhere including onto the food that she was uh, preparing and the cat looking eagerly about to eat everything she brought out on the table. So she you should tell me about that. And then another, the other caterer told me that she went to a house and she was told there were going to be 30 people at it, and she counted 53 coming in. 53. So, I mean, those are the kind of things, I could, these little stories I could put into the books. And uh, the book, and it, it, it was very handy to have all that, that research. And lovely, careful research was done. I went out to a posh restaurant with both of them. That was their fee. I took them to their favourite restaurant in uh, either London or in Dublin, and had a wonderful afternoon while they answered all my questions. Then the twins arrive. Mm. Lovable? Well, they have to be a bit horrible in the beginning. So because I'm sure there are lots of difficult, nervous kids who are come from a dysfunctional family. In this case, Maud and Simon have a mother who drinks rather a lot uh, out of nervousness and a father who, is ga who gambles and is kind of hopeless and not around. And they have a very difficult older brother who is only interested in himself, Walter. So I tried, when, when I started writing the book, and I believe that it's only a fool who wouldn't listen to their advisors and publishers, the publishers and my publisher and uh, editor and agent said to me, the twins are too nice immediately, you must make them a little bit horrible in the beginning, otherwise 
they're like sort of heavenly children who have been flown in and we, we don't want to love them immediately. And because they are um, perhaps um, nervous and anxious about their future, they steal food and things because they don't know where the next bit is coming from. So I mean, Maud and Simon are both snobbish and horrible when we meet them. And then, uh, but they have no mother and father because the mother and mother has, is now in, in care for alcoholism and their father has disappeared. So therefore there's nobody to look after them around this time of New Year. And they come uh, to their uncle to look after them. And the uncle and aunt are also unable to help them. So Cathy and her husband Neil take them over. And then uh, more and more it's become impossible to live with nine-year-olds in the house. And they, so Cathy brings them to her mother who's entirely working class and lives in a much uh, much more humble part of Dublin with her no good husband called Mutty who has never worked in his life. And yeah, bad back. Bad back and mm. never worked and has goes to what he calls his business which is in fact the betting shop and talks about his associates who are the other people he meets at the betting shop. So uh, the, Mutty looks after the children. Mutty is of course an angel with a heart of gold and is terribly kind to these two little nine-year-olds who have never had any kindness. And he takes them by the hand and he brings them to school and he buys them a puppy. And so our hearts are meant to break for them when when the awful thing happens, which is that their parents become functional again. And the mother is released from the alcoholics ward and the father comes back from his travels. And so they go back to their big house and poor Morton and Simon have to go back to their mother and father and leave this lovely jolly, happy, uh, earthy um, life, which they were much preferring. Yes, yeah, so it's the big question, who who should look after children? Who is best to look after children? The people who actually produce them or people who are nice to them? Well, I think that very much myself. It's it, it, something that often exercise me because I have no children myself and I would love to have had children. And uh, I often think to myself, it's a very strange way the Lord arranged for us to have children, really and truly. It would be much nicer that people who really wanted children could fill in a form and show that they would be good, kind parents and that they would take them and look after them. That was, we could go down to the supermarket and get our child. Now that would be a lovely way if it was done. Because so often children are unhappy in their natural homes and I've seen it. And I suppose I come from the side that, that nurture is everything rather than nature. I come from a country where illegitimate children were hidden away in the 50s and the 60s. You know, when any of my friends got a, a teeny little bit pregnant right, right back in the 50s and 60s, they were immediately a cover story was arranged. They were gone to their grandmother. They had this beautiful job in England and they were whisked away for six, seven months and the baby was born and taken away from them. Now that was ridiculous, terrible, uh, that they never saw their child again. And so naturally I do believe that a natural mother has a right and indeed a natural father to see their child. But I don't think that nature is necessarily the right thing for, for a child. Often people are taken away from foster homes and brought back again and it's a big question that's never been satisfactorily answered. So I try to handle it quite lightly through the eyes of little frightened Maud and Simon. But where, where they want to stay is with Matty and Lizzie and uh, in this nice simple home in St. Charlotte's Crescent rather than this big big house called the Beaches where it's lonely and frightening and, then, and nobody lives. But their, their opinion is, is very often not sought. Maeve Binchy talking to me about 20 years ago when her very last novel Scarlet Feather was published in paperback. As you heard she talked she could talk. And I went to meet her in her London house once. And I remember she came to the door. And from that moment, one was overcome with her kindness. I mean, she provided drinks and cake in immense quantities. Uh, a lovely woman, Maeve Binchy. This is the author archive.